Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner, and today our guest is Rumi Morales, who is a partner at Outlier Ventures. And Outlier is uh, one of the one of the one of the teams that's doing some of the most interesting work that I've encountered in uh, looking at at, at a, a lot of you know, investment thesis and and, and startups. Uh, they focus on uh, the convergence of uh, artificial intelligence, IoT, and blockchain, and they've done some fantastic work on their on their website their uh, their thesis and the, and their reports are are required reading for anybody who's uh, who's interested in in the convergence of the technologies and Rumi is a is a partner there and anyway I'm I'm thrilled to have you Rumi thanks for I, joining us it is my pleasure it is it is uh, actually my first podcast so this is uh, going to be fun for me, I think. All right. Well, fantastic. Uh, I ha- had a chance to hear Rumi speak at a uh, at a conference, so I know you uh, you're qu- you're a quite articulate advocate of of technology investing. So really looking forward to it. So thanks. Thank um, first, yeah, first question really is a, b- a bit about your background. I mean, can you tell us about you know what has you know what are the experiences that have helped shape the way you view the world and and what led you to uh, you know to end up where where you are focusing yeah. on uh, uh, investing in, um, in in converging converging concepts. Right. Yeah. It's funny. I remember once. A while back, um, I was putting my resume together and I was staring at it and my looking really confused because I'm thinking, you know, it's a weird career, but it's been a great life. So, uh, and this was like 10 years ago and it's just been weirder since then, but I'm really grateful for it because I think it's all, it's the combination of every experience that's kind of led me up to, to this point. You know, um, my father was a government guy by career, so very stable. My mom was a stay at home mom. But on the other hand, um, my dad was also a diplomat, so we were being moved around all the time. And uh, my mother was Japanese, while my dad was American, so I also was kind of mixed up in terms of my own cultural identity, right? So it's kind of this combination of uh, being grounded, but also having to learn on the fly all the time and being comfortable in your own skin. So, you know, I've lived at this point in seven different countries. I've um, lived in even more number of cities. I began my career in venture. I found myself com- by complete luck or dumb luck, depending on who you ask at the time, because uh, it was fun. Uh, but I was working for a Malaysian firm that kind of exploded with the uh, Asian financial crisis back in the 90s. And that was a tremendous learning experience for me. Um, I then moved on to my next venture uh, experience that also exploded with the dot-com bubble. And I left and it was in New York at the time. So I was uh, not the best track record, but again, a good life learning record, right? Um, I found myself in Goldman Sachs then uh, for seven years. I began actually in the office of the chairman where I helped to launch new initiatives within the firm. So again, this kind of combination of being grounded in an institution, but being very entrepreneurial within it. 
Um, they moved me out to Hong Kong. I helped launch something called the Global Markets Institute. And in Asia, I headed up that arm until my third crisis, which was the Asia, uh, the global financial crisis. Um, and Goldman Sachs should not be talking to people about financial policy, which is what the Global Markets Institute was doing at the time. Uh, I decided that I loved what I was doing, though, and I started my own consulting firm until I had the chance to join the CME group in Chicago. And so I moved to Chicago and was part of the, the exchange's business development arm until they launched a venture capital unit. And despite my track record, I was the only one with VC experience. So I helped to launch and lead that group. And that ultimately really led me to where I am today because we were investing with a, with a mind towards transformational technologies. So we were thinking about what tech will become fintech in the future. And so we were very early on as institutional investors in blockchain, whether it was as investors in Ripple, Digital Currency Group, Digital Asset Holdings. Um, but that was just a third of our portfolio. The other third was focusing on AI as well as next generation data, especially around geospatial data and even quantum computing. So it, it's not a traditional VC background, especially for an, a corporate VC. Um, but all those roads actually helped me um, end up with Outlier because, as you know, and as you mentioned, Outlier has been doing very interesting things in, this, in the similar spaces that I was doing them at CME Ventures. And it was just by complete good fate uh, that I got to know them, and I joined them the summer of this year. Was there a, uh, a specific path that had led you to to focus on technology, or, or did that just was that where you you found the the most interesting opportunities? So, yeah, it's a great question. I I give all credit to the board of directors of the CME Group, uh, who lived through the most important disruption, right, which was the switch from pit trading to electronic trading, right, and that was something that happened through technology. So on their end, they were thinking, well, what is that next generation of disruptive technologies? And doesn't it make sense to go through a venture initiative um, that way just to gain greater optionality? So that remit to look you know, years ahead in the future was not something that was driven by the ventures group, but it was something that I took to immediately. You know, It called for a lot of creativity, a lot of imagination, but also a lot of grounding, I think, in being aware of past patterns and uh, just, I think, given my own experience as an entrepreneur, even within institutions, it all kind of made sense. It clicked for me, although a lot of it is crystal ball gazing. I get that. I think as, as long as you're grounded in some basic fundamentals, it guides you in your investing journey. That's really interesting, uh, interesting perspective, having been at ground zero, as it were, with a, you know, with a, with a company that's undergoing a, a complete digital disruption of the industry. Were there, were there some lessons that you learned from, uh, from seeing, you know, pit trading be displaced by electronic trading that, uh, you know, that, that you'd, you'd either, that reminded you of an echo of, of, of what you'd seen before or, there or, or parallels that you see uh, about to, to play out in, in other industries that you think are, are have been relevant to you? Yes, for sure. I think at the heart of it is everything that we continue to pursue in this life is usually based off of a human need, right? Whether it's shelter or communication or transportation or raising and finding money and protecting it. So, it's only technology that can changes that along the way, but it's still a basic human need. So if it's shelter, it's Airbnb. If it's communication, it's Facebook. If it's transportation, it's Uber. And in this case, in about 
having making money and protecting it that is the function of of an exchange in a financial market so many times i think about you know the first exchange first regulated or established exchange was actually the rice futures market in japan in the 1600s and um Obviously, things have changed along the way, but people still need to do what they do. So when I looked at the shift from pit trading to electronic trading, and the way as we closed down the floors, which we did when during my tenure at CME, um, I wasn't necessarily sad. This is just the arc of history, uh, and technology will continue to change it. Now, is, does it stink for those people that kind of you know are are not able to adapt? Of course, it does. Um, so I guess I think for myself personally, it, investing is one thing, but being a good human being is another, and I try to do both as I as I uh, continue in this VC space. What are some of the uh, considerations? I mean, you, going back again to the to the decision of of a you know an organization that's that's undergoing a a, a transformation and frankly a, a whole a secular shift in the nature of its business. You know, what were some of the the uh, considerations that that came into play when you were looking at investing in new technologies? It, was there were there concerns about uh, you know the the potential impact on uh, on your organization, or you know, whether there might be an, an immune response to to the industry if you're if you're introducing approaches or or new technologies or, or applications that could could end up displacing existing existing processes or, or people. Certainly, but that should never keep you back from but is also a glaring opportunity as much as it could be a glaring disrupting force, right? So uh, while you have to take considerations into account, and especially in a corporate VC, while you don't have to raise external capital, you have to raise political capital, so you have to get people who support you in your vision, um, you have to make the arguments that everything that you see is an opportunity as much as, as it is a threat. And it's an investing can only be one part of it. You also have to execute on incorporating these technologies internally if you choose to be able to adapt and continue to thrive. Um, for, for the CME at the time, when I was at least thinking about, in this case, in particular, blockchain um, and digital assets, we, we saw almost the existential importance on two sides. One, uh, with the clearinghouse, you know, the clearinghouse currently serves as the trusted central counterparty between any buyer and seller. And as, as you know, you know, the promise of blockchain is the blockchain becomes that trusted or non, you know, trustless central counterparty, uh, organizing mechanism. So you don't need a clearinghouse, um, ostensibly. And on the digital asset side, if you look at the products of a future exchange, they're contracts, right? Whether it's a gold contract or an oil contract, um, these are standardized contracts that are almost begging to be coded. And as you think about a universe of smart contracts and other types of digital assets, well, that's another existential component where, you know, you, you, you see that, yes, it could be a threat, but it's also things that exist today. It's just a technological upgrade of what exists. So uh, any smart institution should want to take that uh, because they already have a competitive advantage in that field if that's the business that they're in. Certainly, that was our approach at the time. And that's why we were very early investors in the space. Yeah, that, no, that makes that makes total sense. As as the domain expertise becomes really your sustainable competitive advantage, the the technology to to apply process and into a core business, but it really is uh, in many respects is, is is secondary to competitive advantage. Um, I actually wanted to turn to uh, to Outlier uh, yeah. and could share a little bit about about Outlier and and some of the. Um, 
some of the background and, and, and what brought you to, uh, uh, to work there. Yeah. So outlier is very interesting. Um, people call it a fund, but it's not actually outlier ventures is a, an LLP. It's a partnership. And the partners for the past almost five years now have been underwriting and incubating, if I can use those words, um, very advanced open source protocols where usually there is a token mechanism as, as a means of communication or value transfer. Uh, these protocols or networks are really focused on what we call convergence, our, our convergence ecosystem. And it's really, it's almost like the whole, the value life of data, right? How data is captured or collected, um, how that data then becomes organized or exchanged, and then how that data uh, can be acted upon or how you can learn insights from that data. So to put buzzwords on that, uh, IoT would be the collection mechanism. Uh, DLT, distributed ledger technology or blockchains, is the organizing mechanism. And AI would be the insight mechanism of data in and of itself. So it's really kind of like the whole data platform um, that our protocols are trying to uh, find solutions for uh, the challenges in these areas. So, you know, for example, we IOTA was one very early investment of ours, if you know of IOTA, which is uh, mm -hmm. focusing on device-to-device -device communications, uh, payments and transactions. Other ones include Sovereign, which is focusing on uh, identity. Fetch is fo focused on very on distributed ledger intelligence. So everyone talks about, oh, you put data on the blockchain and there it is. Like, yay, it's immutable. And Fetch is like, well, wait a minute. No, that's a lot of data that can learn from each other, right? And be able to make uh, better decisions or on behalf of, of people that are posing problems for it. Um, so these are the types of things that Outlier focuses on. It's really the convergence of advanced technologies. We do this by, as I mentioned, investing in them, but also helping them to build and scale. Uh, we're a 30-person platform, so our our functions cover everything from token design to research, legal, marketing, operations, finance, you name it. Um, basically doing what we believe is in the best interest of creating a robust network um, that can be widely adopted by institutions and machines really going into the future. Yeah, the um, the convergence thesis, I think, again, is 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 really, uh, yeah, I think it's 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 one of the most articulate, eloquently written uh, arguments in in favor of what I, what I like to call combinatorial in, in, innovation. The, the the fact that it's that no, no single one of these technologies and it's you know by itself is uh, is will end up creating uh, you know, enormous enormous value but it's this it, that the combination of, of these different technologies ends up being a uh, you know, generates a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts I'd love to get kind of your thoughts on you know when you when you saw the, the convergence thesis and and maybe uh, a bit of insight for you know for our listeners to um, to understand you know some of the some of the principles behind the convergence thesis well sure absolutely i will tell you the first time i saw the convergence thesis i was about to speak with jamie burke who is the ceo of outlier and um somebody had said you know you two should talk it's like rumi you like iota jamie's he's an iota you guys should talk it's like well uh okay and it wasn't much of an introduction so two months later we finally got on the phone with each other and uh right before i called him i thought well let me take a look at this Outlier Ventures group. Let me see their website. 
and my jaw hit the floor when I did um, because everything I felt at a gut level or I knew anecdotally or through my own experience, they had written about with such thoughtful analysis and <laughs> fact-based research um, that I was both jealous but also incredibly comforted uh, that I wasn't crazy just by myself. I mean, we could be crazy together. Um, but they, what, what they had done was really rooted in so much uh, good work. And that was, you know, it's, uh, it's available to the public. Everyone, please feel free to just go to outlierventures.io and look at the research because um, it's available to everyone. Um, but because they were so thoughtful about their approach, I was floored and I knew that this was an, ex an organization that I wanted to be part of right away. Um, but again, to your point, you know, what is the convergence ecosystem? You know, as I mentioned, it's a, it's really the convergence of data production with data distribution and data consumption. Um, and you almost look at the flow of data as like, well, it needs to be collected. And then how it's, how is it authenticated or validated? How is it secured? And how is it transported? And then what marketplaces exist? And then finally, how does, how, how does this become automated? And if you look, um, at our report, or you'll see uh, an infographic that we have, you'll see that there are different buckets that fall out of this this kind of value life of data, whether it's around uh, IoT data marketplaces, AI data marketplaces, personal data marketplaces, um, but there are also issues around storage, um, identity and reputation, you know, value interoperability, uh, so on and so forth. And what outliers choosing to do um, in terms of what we're investing is, we're investing in these different pockets. So for example, if it is IoT data market, um, IOTA was is a representative investment there, right? In AI data market, there's a company or it's a group called Ocean that we're invested in. They're represented there. Uh, decentralized machine learning, um, this is where Fetch falls into play, right? So we, we are we're making our investments not blindly, but very in a very disciplined manner based on this true north that we have, uh, which is convergence. Yeah, that concept of true north is, uh, you know, really resonates. I think that that's, uh, you know, certainly to sustain, uh, you know, any any long longer term investors against, you know, short sh the short term volatility that you're that that you're going to see. I mean, you know, I'd love to get some of your your thoughts. I mean, you know, you you did you have you have mentioned that you've been in a couple of, uh, uh, you know, you've you've been in a couple of organizations that that got uh, you know impacted when uh, with bubbles and crises. But uh, on, you know, on the flip side, you know, at least the way a lot of constructive uh, folks look at this, look at that sort of experience is that, you know, failure, if you haven't failed enough, you haven't, you haven't, uh, you haven't tried hard enough. Right. And, um, right now, uh, blockchain technologies or cryptocurrencies are going through, a, a, I, I could say a, a it's crypto winter again. And I, uh, are, are there some, some lessons that you learned from your prior experience that, serve you well today or uh, or other patterns that that you see really playing out as if if history is is in fact rhyming again right uh, uh, how long is this podcast yeah you're well don't worry we you've got well, i won't uh, i i won't truncate your thoughts so <laughs> you you've got the floor absolutely no, it's funny. I was uh, talking about this with a friend the other day. I know people compare this crypto winter to the uh, dot-com bubble bursting, which I went through. But actually, for me, this is much more similar to the Asian financial crisis. 
um, and my experience there. And I was working for a Malaysian VC, uh, but based in London. And the things that we were investing in were primarily sterling, you know, pound assets or U.S. dollar assets. And uh, when the financial crisis happened in Southeast Asia, the ringgit was devalued by 40% in two weeks. Right. But our obligations were in pounds or dollars. And it was really painful, right, for many people. And I was, uh, you know, I was managing the head office based in London at the time. And I was trying to pay every single bill that I could. Uh, we had portfolio companies looking at me asking what in the world is going to happen to me. Um, you know, I had creditors come, they, they seized our furniture. Uh, they, I remember once getting a judgment cause I didn't pay for fire extinguishers. And I thought that was so ironic because <laughs> I was fighting fires like all the time. <laughs> wow. And, um, I was a director of this company, right? So I was liable for, for everything. And then finally I, uh, you know, I was able to get the power of attorney of the CEO in, in Malaysia. And I sold off every asset I could that he had and personal assets of his, uh, found a lawyer, uh, to get, let get out of the lease. And I, then that was it. I was not a British citizen. I was a U.S. citizen. So I thought, well, I'll move to New York. Um, say if you make it there, you can make it anywhere. So that's what I did. <laughs> and I was, I was 22 years old at this point. Wow. What a. So, what, that, that's 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 diving into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> right. So compared to that, I recognize there is so much pain right now for people in the in crypto winter, and I compare it to the Asian financial crisis because of the speed with which it's happened, and and, and certainly what was happening in Southeast Asia prior to that was a nice big bubble. It felt really good until it popped and it went down really fast. Um, but I will also say what it, what got me when I came back to New York, or when I went to New York was that very few people knew what was happening, right? They weren't experiencing what had happened in Southeast Asia directly. I see this now um, as I look around, you know, the crypto community is still kind of small. I talk to friends who are not involved in this space and they're like, oh, what's the, yeah, so what's going on? I heard something about maybe Bitcoin's not doing well, right? So it's hard because you don't have a broader community that that is trying to get through this with you together. Versus in the dot-com bubble, I felt almost... Everyone knew there was a run-up in the internet stocks, and everyone kind of saw it go down. It was part of the collective conscience. So crypto winter can feel very isolating, I think, for people who are in it right now because not enough people more broadly are involved in it. You know, with the holidays coming up, you'll be at, around the Christmas tree. No one will understand your pain, <laughs> I think, except for if you're involved in it directly. But, so the le- you know, the lesson for me in that was, oh, my gosh, looking back at my time 20 years ago when that happened, it was really the best thing that happened for me. Um, and I would hope others that are enduring the crypto winter right now can feel the same way. Um, I, I will say that what got me through back then was that I was not in it for the money. You know, I wasn't a VC because I thought, oh, I was going to make tons of money. Like I was, I really believe in the companies that we were investing in. So for those who make it through this crypto winter, it will be those that believe in the longer term vision and value of digital currencies and distributed ledgers. For those who just came into it for a quick buck, you've lost that quick buck. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say that it's whether it's my time with the CME or even today, like I knew from the start that this is what I wanted to pursue always. I'm obviously grateful for the CME for giving me my, my start, but I'm still as excited about the opportunities and applications of blockchain as I've ever been. 
But certainly back then, you know, it's funny. I think m- many people actually have this story. Like when I first learned about Bitcoin, I completely dismissed it. was very skeptical about it. Um, but then I would just go to some of these conferences uh, back when they were, they were more like medieval Renaissance fairs or <laughs> Star Trek conventions in their feel. Um, but I really admired the, the, the vision, the creativity of their approaches to a, a possible, you know, new financial service order, however, however you want to say it. Um, I, I think people who are in financial institutions tend to feel a, a little bit arrogant and protective about what they know and saying, well, you know, this is the way it's supposed to be done. And it's very interesting for me to hear from a bunch of other technologists who may not have had financial services experience come at, you know, possibilities in a completely new way. And it was actually, for me, a conversation with a gentleman named Micah Winklespecht. Uh, Micah is right now the CEO of a company called GEM. Um, Micah is not from the financial services industry, and I would love to tell you what it was that he said for me and for him, it may have just been a very simple conversation, but it was one of those, you know, the heavens parted and the angels sang kind of a thing. But I realized the, the applications of blockchain technology within financial services industry, uh, just in terms of, uh, the, the, for me, the most important part was the decentralized components of it and the fact that you don't need counterparties everywhere. You don't need necessarily middlemen everywhere. Um, so I, I, I started to understand it from an infrastructure perspective. But then for me today, in terms of what gets me excited about it today is, is again, it's still decentralization. And the fact that now I realize you're probably not going to take away the Federal Reserve, nor should you, at least in the short term. Um, so you may not need, you may still need that central authority. But with trillions of devices coming online, um, increasingly, as we think about machine to machine communication, transactions and trading, that's where I really get excited. This is the, it's a decentralized use case. It's something where we know there's going to be more and more value interoperability. Blockchains make sense in this regard. You know, my, my experience at the CME coming from an exchange is very relevant as well in this regard. And working at Outlier Ventures and with my partners now, it's, I think we're very well positioned to be able to forge ahead with new pl- protocols and applications in this space. So that brings me to the connection with with IoT and would love to get your thoughts on really the the different types of of, of applications that that you see as as promising uh, when you when you apply uh, combinatorial approaches that that incorporate blockchain to uh, to IoT. Right, and some people call this, and, and again, maybe. Sorry for, for hedging or being a little bit not not direct here, but I, again, I've always felt that it's not just these technologies in isolation, but in combination with each other, right? So it's not just IT, but also AI mm-hmm. together. Um, but where I get most excited is, you know, what we call we call it Web 3.0, or you know, for Outlier, it's the convergence ecosystem. I'm really thinking about the digitization of all industries, um, more traditional ones, whether that's in automotive or shipping or logistics and so on and so forth. Um, this is where I think of a, a lot more possibilities. For, for Up until now, I'd say financial services came into blockchain and digital assets really fast, but I don't think that those are the best use cases for them. As we think about industry 4.0, whether it's around supply chain or machine-to-machine uh, communications and, or, and, and, and transactions, whether it's around smart cities 
or mobility, uh, that's where we have a lot of things that I personally get excited about and we're focusing on. Um, I'll also give out a shout out to Chicago in this regard, which is where I'm based. Um, as, as I look around the landscape of competitive advantage and uh, the tools that's needed, that are needed for, for this industry, this next generation of digital industries to survive and to thrive, Chicago to me is the only city, at least in the United States, where you have a combination of both exchanges, you know, financial exchanges, plus traditional industry around manufacturing and transportation and so on and so forth. So that's, that's one of the reasons I'm based here is because of the combination of the two as all physical assets become digital ones. I think that's a great point. And uh, we were, you know, uh, yeah, briefly, we were, we were, uh, we were chatting with some other folks from Chicago. I actually had a uh, podcast guest earlier in the year, Dan Yarmuluk, who was who's talking about the, you know, the really the the incredibly robust ecosystem of of manufacturing companies and uh, and innovation that's that's really based in the Midwest. And you know, would love to get your sense, you know, having having dealt with some sort of pure you know, when you compare pure technology companies to dealing with, um, you know. Traditional manufacturing, you know, are are there some some key differences in terms of how uh, how potential customers view adopting cutting edge technologies that you know, may not necessarily have been you know may not have necessarily have been been proven, but you know, in your experience in helping you know helping small companies grow, you know, what are some of the key differences in in you know when you're selling to say to a you know a, finan- a information based exchange versus uh, you know, working with a manufacturing company as a, as a potential customer? Right. It's, it's a great question. One that I probably haven't thought deliberately enough about before. I mean, I would think an information technology company, it's, it's, in, it's in their D- DNA to continually iterate and understand technology innovation every step, 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 step of the way, right? Versus I think some of the larger manufacturing enterprises, it's like, boom, this is what we do. And then they wait for the next boom of what they do, right? So you don't have as much um, fine tuning, uh, but when they decide to go all in on something, I, I feel like they embrace it in a in a major way. So I I've been very surprised. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, but here in Chicago, for example, Bosch has their IoT center here. They have a huge initiative. Um, called UI Labs, where it's really focused on smart cities and digital manufacturing, as well as something called M-Hub, which is a digital manufacturing hub. And they are working very, very closely um, with with more traditional industries who kind of understand that, yes, there's a new digital wave coming. This is going to be our next boom, and we want to be able to get there. So the corporate partners as well that Outlier has, whether it's been with companies like Bosch or or Siemens or Samsung. I mean, these these are companies that understand that they do need to make big efforts here, and that when that they do, uh, they they almost go all in. So, uh, coming back to the companies that that you invest in or that you take a stake in. I mean, are there are are there any really notable differences or? Or characteristics, I would say that that can distinguish those those investments that succeed um, versus those that you know that fail to meet the uh, expectations. And this is you know a, a, a kind of a broad question, but you know, in your experience in VC, what uh, what does what does separate the sure. winners? 
yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a question that every VC tries to answer correctly, right? <laughs> of course. You always want to invest in the winners. And I'll, I'll speak here from my own experience of leading the CME portfolio because I was not directly involved in the current outlier cohort since I just joined, as mentioned, over the summer. But I was very proud of the um, the companies that we invested in at CME. That you know, they say if you don't have failures in venture, you're not doing venture correctly. But out of the 16 companies, I mean, all of them, uh, they've either been acquired or they're still very strong uh, going concerns, even in a highly risky, quote-unquote risky area. Um, companies like Ripple, as mentioned, our digital asset, but also companies like Filament, Orbital Insight, Spark Ignition, Nirvana Systems, um, these have these have thrived. And why? I think for us, certainly at CME Ventures, we were always grounded in technology and the differentiated technology. I know sometimes people say, well, you know, you, you need to invest in, in the right management. Like, yes, but we, we see management come and go uh, sometimes in, in startups often. Uh, many times people will say, oh, you need the right business model. Um, but many times startups will need to pivot, right? So uh, for us, it's like, well, at the end of the day, when the zombie apocalypse comes and all are left are the cockroaches in your technology, how differentiated, what is the value there? Like, what, what is a unique way of approaching a problem that you're trying to go to? Um, and for us, that, that is the core, that is the heart of the company that we chose to invest in. At the CME, we were very lucky. You know, you had 1,500 people in the technology division who assisted us with our research, so we had subject matter experts to draw upon. But also at Outlier, we have a fully staffed technology group called Outlier Labs, and we lean on them heavily uh, for the technology guidance, because I think that's really a differentiating feature there. Yeah, um, I was going to. Uh, uh, oh, uh, I was just going to going to ask how you you know how you how you go against the conventional wisdom. I mean, if I mean the the trick of being an in investor is is finding that you know potentially that undervalued asset, much less in venture than when you're trading public equities. But uh, you know how what what is what does give you the the confidence to go against uh, conventional wisdom right well i think this this may go back to your uh first very first question for me which is how did you end up here to begin with right <laughs> i come, i come from an unconventional background so maybe i'm comfortable here right and advocating for for technologies like this as i need have needed to advocate for myself throughout my life um, so I think you have to, as an investor, you have to be a little bit unconventional yourself if you choose to uh, play in this playground. Um, but at the, you know, at the same time, I think you have to have a very core belief of what you're driving towards. At Outlier, I'll say it again and, and again and again, but our true north is the convergence ecosystem, our convergence thesis, and that's what drives us in the investments that we choose to make or not make. Um, so it's always very important to have that as a, have a guiding light. And for me, then to dig very deeply into the technology. And one other thing I will say, um, and maybe this is easier, right, as a series B or C investor as opposed to a pre-seed or seed investor. But one of the other things that really carried us through at CME Ventures, and we were we were series A and B then, but it was our fellow co-investors. Like as I've mentioned, we you know we we were in startups where the CEOs would change or the business models would have to pivot. But at the end of the day, you know, what, what stays usually are the other investors that you went in with to begin with. And many times as part of our diligence process, we would talk with the other investors and say, well, what do you see here, right? What do you think is going to happen in three to five years' time? 
And as long as you can gut check each other, that's also very helpful. And I think I was very grateful with our portfolio that we had really good co-investors in each of our companies. No, that's that's great, and that's that's a that's a perfect leader lead into my uh, really to my next question, which is you know as you look forward, I mean, what are the you know what are some of the key forces and 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 technologies and and, and potential outcomes that uh, that you're most optimistic about? Uh, that's a great question. I was I was I was expecting you to say that I'm most terrified about. <laughs> well, I'll ask you about what keeps you up at night late, later. But I always like to start with the uh, with with the, okay. with with, the, with with what you know what 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 keeps you wakes you up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'm actually most optimistic about distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology. I recognize we're going through a rough patch right now. Um, but as mentioned, as I think of its applications, especially in IoT or, you know, machine to machine communications and transactions, it's very exciting. But I'm also really optimistic about it because so many people seem to be aware of it and engaged in it. The community, as crazy as it is, is very communicative, right? And uh, as a result, I think that even when the blowups happen, they happen in the wide open. And then people hopefully then work together to resolve them. You know, I sometimes um, I think about as a mom, right? I think about blockchain and AI. When you, I was, when I, when I thought you were going to ask me what frightens me, I was going to say AI. Mm. As much as I love it today, um, but I think about uh, blockchain and AI. It's like as children, right? Blockchain mm-hmm. is the child who uh, you know gets the the face tattoo, you know, drops out of school, <laughs> walks in the rock band, you know. It tells you, I was like, Mom, I'm going to Hollywood, Mom. And they just, they overshare everything, right? But the good thing is, and you're like very emotionally involved in, with this child, but they're talking to you all the time. Their ideas may be crazy, but they're like, they're really excitable children um, that communicate everything. Versus the AI child who, you know, comes home, locks and says, like, how is school, honey? Fine. And just goes into the room and closes the door. Yeah. And you're not really sure. What they're doing in there, but they're coming home right now. They're coming home with straight A's, right? They're like, oh, I, I guess he's doing something right. I guess I'm doing right. But I get worried because it's a little bit of a black box. I'm not sure what my mm-hmm. AI child is doing in his room. He's getting the straight A's, but I'm not sure, right? And so I'm, I get frightened about AI because I don't feel there's a community around it is as mm-hmm. transparent. Uh, they don't co-op or share as much as the blockchain community does, certainly. And... And it is a black box to too many people. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think about, for example, financial services industry, where you have a number of banks and other institutions having internal blockchain groups or investing in blockchain startups. But when it comes to AI, most of them do not have internal AI groups mm. and are not investing in AI startups. Although I think there's a broad recognition of, of the importance of artificial intelligence and the, and the potential impact that it can have on industries going forward. And so to the extent that a number of financial institutions or other, you know, other organizations will then say, well, you know, we won't develop it in-house. We will utilize vendors for AI, this, that, or the other. You're just concentrating the risk then, right, um, amongst a number of unproven uh, companies. And I, as I think about you know, living through the global financial crisis 10 years ago, think about it in the future with AI that people don't really understand and or have outsourced. So 
That's where I get concerned. No, that's a that's a great point, and and I, you know, there's been some efforts to codify at least some ethics around that. There were the the twenty three Asilomar principles that uh, mm-hmm. that a bunch of a uh, bunch of tech leaders and 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 scientists have put together. But it, it is uh, you know, you know, certainly, I think a lot. There's a a big debate and a big divergence in terms of the. The potential impact, certainly a lot of concerns about technological unemployment and, uh, well, of course, ethics of AI are, are yeah. really important, right? And um, But ultimately, I, I think what's so interesting as well is that you do have, um, you know, when you apply these machine learning technologies to physical processes and, and, and connected devices, I mean, that really just opens up this universe of, of you know, possibilities of new applications and, and value creation too on the on the positive side. So it's it's sort of it's it's it it's not easy to come to a kind of a a, a, a final determination on you know whether AI is uh, you know what what the how whether the benefits are going to outweigh the, uh, the the risks at this point. Right, right, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to ask you uh, more more broadly. Uh, you know, are are there um, are there any any particular industries where you're seeing uh, exciting applications of of uh, or where you see some of the, the the most interesting use cases of of combinatorial technologies, or or or, or where you're most optimistic about the convergence thesis, uh, you know, playing out. Yeah, I think it is, again, in the more traditional um, spaces, I, I say traditional, but um, industrial uh, is something that I'm very, that I like a lot, whether it's in oil and gas and energy. Uh, one of the companies that we had invested in at CME Ventures is called Spark Cognition. I love Spark Cognition because I don't know what the buzzword is to describe it, right? And I think that's actually, as an investor, where you want to be is in the company where the buzzword doesn't exist yet, but they, they are doing incredible things around AI and IoT and increasingly use, utilizing uh, blockchain technologies as well. Um, but yeah, very much interested in that universe of basic mm-hmm. uh, basic activities. As, as I talked again, you know, the human need, things around food, food supply. It's a big thing that's actually taken, taken off well here in Chicago as well with some food blockchain startups. Um, so, so that's issues around like supply chain, right? Identity, provenance, so on and so forth. So for many people, this is not sexy stuff. I'm not a crypto kitty type of girl <laughs> either. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more of a plumber in the space. So I get excited about digital plumbing, really. Yeah. No, I think we're I think we're very much of the same mind on that as well. I, you know, at, 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 at Momenta, we've been much more interested in the uh, in the practical applications of uh, and of advanced technologies really applied to industries that have, you know, that are, that are, that have been around for a long time and are going to continue to be around. So now mm-hmm. I know you, you, you had a, a chance to mention, uh, you know, a few companies, but we just wanted to, to circle back and, and see if there are any, uh, any, any particular companies that you're keeping your eyes on that, uh, that, you know, that really excite you. Uh, everything in the outlier portfolio. <laughs> can I, can I, Say that? Yeah, go um, absolutely. Whether it's ocean, uh, ocean, such Haya, Sovereign, Seed. Um, I, I and I mentioned IOTA was an, a very early one of ours. Yeah. I, I do believe uh, that they are solving for some very interesting problems. 
problems, not just for today, but for the, the, the future, right? Digital mm-hmm. economy as we are going to understand it. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, for us, I mean, our investment horizon is 10 to 20 years out. Um, so we're, we're very, I guess, imaginative. But because we are so grounded in our investment thesis, I think we have core convictions about where to invest in these areas. So I'm excited about them, not because they're going to make a quick buck tomorrow, but this is going to be long-term infrastructure for, you know, our industries and our economies 10, 20 plus years from now. Right. It'll be, it'll be much more transformative. And uh, I, I, would, I would share your, your view on IOTA. I had Kevin, I, uh, Kevin Chen, who's uh, an evangelist here in New York from, from IOTA, was on one of our webinars uh, a, a little while back. But I um, uh, just, just saw him the other night, and he was, uh, he's, he was demoing a, uh, actually a new physical IOTA coin that, that he was using to, uh, to demo uh, really? a wallet and transactions. Yeah, he's a super smart guy. And, and and really, you know, really interested in, in also in, in, in working with uh, actually doing a lot of work with drones and, and, and applying the, the technology for, for things like micropayments. So it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So um, anyway, so and our final question is, uh, is just a resource. Are there, you know, are there any interesting books that you have uh, you know, that, you, that you would recommend to, to friends or, or, or colleagues or, or other resources that, uh, you know, that, 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 are, that are near and dear? Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's nothing related to technology, however. It's probably like anti-technology. We like that. We like that, too. Around me, I, I'm a big Henry David Thoreau person. Oh wow! Um, you know his, his his sentiments on on nature and um, it's for, for me it's like very it's, it's actually very inspiring in the technology world if that can make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know he he too was kind of an unconventional fellow I suppose so maybe that's why I see a lot of his work as inspiration for what I do. I just the other day I posted on uh, on Twitter something that he had written. As I think about crypto winter, right, and if, if it's okay to quote it, because I think it's very appropriate. Um, Absolutely. Henry David, I think it's from Walden, but he had said, uh, "If you if you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them." Right, and I'm like, "Hey, <laughs> hey, Thoreau, that's absolutely right. You know, wow. we, we should be." should be we should have bold visions we yeah. and even if you know that even if they're up in the air you're like it, it was worth it you know your work is not lost but you do need to put foundations other than and that that is a call to action for everyone involved in this space today don't walk away just make the make the foundations even more robust um that's what we're doing at outlier and that's even without outlier that's what i would choose to do as an individual right so, oh, no, that's like- that's that's great counsel, and and I think it's it's applicable to, you know, to to, to so many you know so many so many aspects of life. But uh, uh, applying the technology that makes uh, that makes a, a a lot of sense. We um, uh, actually our second podcast guest uh, Nick Gogarty had written a written a book called The Nature of Value, where he looks mm-hmm. at the evolution of um, you know biological systems at, really and as a as an analog to how value gets created in uh, through companies and industries and in economies. And it's uh, it, it's it's, it's so fascinating that you brought that up, but I think when you go back to Thoreau, that's some. I mean, there's some some 
powerful sentiments and, and amazing, <laughs> timeless insights as well. So it's uh, so thank you for that. That's uh, it's inspired me to to, to pick up uh, pick up Walden or, or a couple oh, of his fun. other writings. Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, it's, it's been it's been great talking to you, uh, Rumi. And uh, again, this is it's this has been a conversation with Rumi Morales, who is a partner at Outlier Ventures. I'm Ed McGuire, uh, Insights Partner at Momenta, with another episode of our Edge podcast. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was, it was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.